my gosh, ages and ages and ages. And I seem to show up um, occasionally when Sylvia and Donald are otherwise occupied. <coughs> The past couple of days I've been thinking, I, I've been planning on talking um, this morning about uh, sila as practice. Um, and on the way over I was thinking about the situation in Japan and <coughs> particularly about the workers. Somebody mentioned the workers. And, I, and the thought that occurred to me was that as as creatures, we aren't really. If there, if we're here out of intelligent design, whoever it was didn't plan for the media. <laughs> so we sort of have media indigestion, you know. It's just uh, when we're when we're confronted with when we encounter uh, suffering, the impulse is to do something, and when you're just looking at a flat-screen TV, or even a not-so-flat-screen TV, there's nothing to do but suffer yourself. Excuse me. Please. Um, you said, the first sentence you said, something as practice, and I missed Sila. Ah. I did hear it, but I don't know what that means. Ah, good. <laughs> Sila is the Pali. Pali is the language that the Buddhist teachings are recorded in, and presumably approximates uh, the language that he spoke, roughly, closer to that than to English. Um, sila is, the, is a, uh, a word that, that is translated uh, awkwardly. Um, I, I in, in my mind, I translate it as ethical practice. And it's not usually what, it, what draws people to the Buddhist teachings. I mean, it, most of us find our way to the Buddhist teachings through meditation. Um, anybody say, oh my gosh, I can't wait to uh, practice ethics according to the Buddha's path? <laughs> That's why you're here at Spirit Rock? Anybody? All right. Great. <laughs> But it's, it, is a, it is so central to the Buddhist teachings, and it is, it's, it's not attended to often because we've sort of got a morality hangover. You know what I mean? Most of us are fleeing the kind of judgmental uh, stuff that passes for uh, ethical behavior. Uh, in the culture and in, and in most religious traditions, and it's it's um, an ethical practice in the in in the sense that the Buddha meant is really different. It's profoundly different from what we understand um, it to be, and yet it is it is central. To the, Buddhist, to the Buddhist path. 
The Eightfold Path, which is the, which when I first heard Eightfold Path, I thought that's too many folds. Um, I, I, I couldn't remember them, you know. Eight, aren't you only supposed to be able to hold on to seven at once? Isn't there something like that? You know, they, so I thought, I, I felt justified in not being able to remember for years. Um, but but the, the Eightfold Path is the Buddha's program for uh, bringing an end to, or at least an attenuation of, the suffering, the dissatisfaction that comes with being alive. In fact, out of the eight folds, what are they, eight elements, the three of them are uh, sila-based, revolving around speech, action, and livelihood. For most of us, for years, I practiced a one-fold path, you know, that you meditate and practice mindfulness, and uh, that, was, that was what attracted me to the Dharma. And then after a while, you, after a few Dharma talks or a few dozen or whatever, uh, and a book or two or ten or more, you start to get the gist of the teachings, and, and it's... It's just been, in the, in the past four to six months for me, it's become uh, almost a central part of my practice uh, and my understanding of what the Buddha had in mind. And so I want to share that because the goal of sila practice is liberation and not being good. Um, it's... One of the reasons it's particularly hard to understand what the Buddha meant by sila practice, by ethical practice, is that we are so conditioned to think of morality in terms of commandments, in terms of what you should do and what you shouldn't do, what is good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. You know? I mean, isn't that, it's not just me, right? I mean, we, and we're so conditioned that it's very hard to even approach the precepts um, or sila practice generally. The precepts grow out of sila practice. Um, and I'll, I'll explain, I'll, I'll talk about the precepts a little bit too. Um, but the precepts are not about uh, right and wrong. Although we talk about following a precept or breaking a precept, but I've, I've become convinced recently that precepts are not things you can break. For those of you who are, who are new enough to the practice, the precepts are the training rules that the Buddha prescribed um, for ethical behavior. And uh, I'll talk about them a little bit more, uh, in a little bit more detail in a bit. Um, this group meets once a month. Uh, at 8 o'clock, I think at 8 o'clock, to, to discuss and contemplate the precepts. I do the same with my group in, in, in Davis. Um, and there, there are five of them, uh, and they're, uh, I'm not going to go through, I'm not going to list them right now. You'd recognize them about, you know, killing and stealing, but those are so gross as interpretations. But the precepts are, are 
are rules for training, they're rules for practice. Um, and I don't think there's something you can break. My son-in-law is a, um, he's, an, he's a triathlete, he's an Ironman triathlete, which really impresses me because um, I sort of can't really swim really well across a pool. <laughs> he's, he said that Ironman, you start with two miles, and then you ride your bike 100 miles or 110 miles, 112 miles. Oh, do you do this? I've done a half iron. Oh, pretty impressive. And then, of course, the warm down is a full marathon. <laughs> that's how you, you know, after all that exercise, you. And he goes out and he does his 14 hours or whatever. Oh, my gosh. But when I go to visit, he's up at 5 every morning and he's out for an hour and a half. You know, he's in LA, so he goes and he rides from Studio City out to Griffith Park and around Griffith Park and back. And then he showers up and goes to work. And that's his training practice. And if he doesn't do that one morning, it's not like he's broken that practice. It's just that he wasn't practicing at that time. But we sort of think of precepts, we think of these rules of training as, um, we talk about them as breaking a precept, following a precept. Uh, as a rule of training, but they're not really, <clears throat> they're not really about, uh, let, me, let me describe an, another way that I understand them. Um, they're, they're markers for us to pay attention to. I used to do a lot of sailing on San Francisco Bay, very challenging place to sail, if you've ever sailed. Uh, the wind is pretty brisk particularly in summer afternoons, and the currents can be pretty strong. And I remember I was sailing towards Angel Island one, one morning, and I'd gone below for some reason. There was someone else on the boat with me, I don't remember. But I, I came up, and I, I just looked around to see what was going on, and ahead of me was a buoy, and it was just going like this, across in front of me. And it was leaving a wake. <laughs> And, you know, it, it really uh, jolted me because I could have hit it really easily. I, it was, it, I thought I was going that way, but clearly I was going that way. <laughs> and yet, without that buoy, I wouldn't have even noticed that motion. You know, I wouldn't even have noticed it. But because it was anchored, I could see I was drifting sideways at least as fast as I was going forwards <clears throat> because of the current. And so the, the, the elements of sila practice, speech, action, and livelihood, are markers to be kept in mind to help us keep track of what we're doing. They really are ultimately mindfulness practices. They're not about right and wrong, they're about their inside practices. And their purpose is uh, to spark inquiry. Their purpose is to help us attenuate the dissatisfaction that comes with being, with being alive. Um, and they do so by enhancing our 
our uh, awareness of, of what we're doing. <coughs> there are insight practices. There are, are three elements, right speech, right action, right livelihood, is how they're translated. The other elements of the Eightfold Path, by the way, um, there are a couple of wisdom elements which have to do with understanding, right understanding, and right intention. Translate, and then the meditation elements, which are effort, mindfulness, and concentration. See, I can do all eight now. <laughs> but I do them in groups of, you know, three groups. So. <laughs> if, you ever, if you ever come up against the 12 links of dependent origination, <laughs> you, need, you need cards. <laughs> but, they, but they're translated as, you know, right intention, right speech, right action, and that's a kind of a, a clunky translation too because it implies right as opposed to wrong. And again, you know, if we aren't practicing them, we're just not practicing them. It's, there's nothing wrong with not practicing them. It's just that, and like, just like there's nothing wrong with not sitting some morning, um, but if we're not, we're, we're not. The elements of, and, and the precepts in, and the precepts and the seal of practice involve all aspects of the Eightfold Path. All other elements are uh, involved, and they are requisites for awakening. Uh, awakening, enlightenment, however you want to understand it, uh, coming to the end of suffering isn't isn't done without the help of the precepts or the help of these, of these elements. And the speech, action, and livelihood are translated into the five precepts for lay people. <coughs> and right livelihood sort of isn't translated into a precept. Excuse me. Um, and boy, anybody ever heard Anybody talk about right livelihood? It's really rare. I'll talk a little bit about that in a while. Um, there, are, there are five of these uh, critters that uh, translate um, speech and action. And usually they're, they're presented um, Oh, some variation of the following. For the purposes of training, I undertake to refrain from, well, let's just start with taking life. And then the second would be for, I, for the purposes of training, I undertake to refrain from taking what's not freely given. The third is, for the purposes of training, I vow to refrain from unskillful or harmful sexuality. And the fourth is to refrain from false speech. Oh, thank you very much. To refrain from false speech. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> and the last is to refrain from the use of uh, drugs or alcohol. Mm, and then they either the cause heedlessness or to the point of heedlessness, something about heedlessness. 
and they're, those are really clunky translations. So I want to talk about them uh, in, in a little bit more depth. Um, the first one in the Pali, the Pali translation or the Pali formulation of the first precept, Panatipata, uh, literally means to strike at. So the first precept isn't really about taking life, even though that's how it's translated. And there's nothing wrong with translating it as that. It gives you a nice behavioral marker. But really what we're talking about is cultivating an intention. And the idea here, it's not to say, don't strike at. It's let's cultivate the intention not to. Because the intention not to strike at the mosquito that's buzzing around your ear still tough for me. And I don't feel so bad because the Dalai Lama says it's tough for him too. Um, he, did you, anybody see him when he was on Oprah and she asked him what he regretted in his life? And he said, well, I still have trouble with mosquitoes. And, and she said, what? Um, Flicks it off his arm like this, and then flicks it off a second time. <laughs> the theorem says, it wasn't so easy. yeah, he wasn't. Well, it's, it's, you know, the idea here is to, is to cultivate. It's not um, be good. It's cultivate uh, skillful behavior. Because if you say, you know, don't kill, well, then you set yourself up for failure if you ever drive down the Central Valley in the summer. <laughs> you know, um, so sometimes you're the windshield and sometimes you're the bug. Is that, it was an old, a country and western song. Oh, it was Mary Chapin Carpenter. Sometimes you're the windshield and sometimes you're the bug. You, know, so you set yourself up for failure if you say, be this or do that. And then, of course, if you think it's the way things are supposed to be, it's a view, it's a, it's a judgment. And really what the Buddha is trying to get us to do is to pay attention to what we're doing by cultivating our awareness of what we're doing. Um, so, so the idea is to not, not to strike at another, uh, another being. Second of the precepts is about not taking what is not freely given. And I can think of situations where, for example, striking at another being may be appropriate. It might not be what the Buddha would have done. But, you know, imagine that you're sort of loitering around a shopping mall in Tucson one morning, and you you get, to, in, in Arizona, I guess you get to you get to carry your weaponry around with you and you can be you're just sort of standing there outside a Safeway and you're admiring your new silver whatever it is with the pearl handle and all of a sudden somebody starts shooting up the place. Do you sort of say, you know, I, I just have to watch this unfold? You do watching, watching, you know, sad, sad. Or do you swallow the karma and take an action? Yeah. 
I thought about that after the Virginia Tech shooting. No. Sometimes, I mean, I can think of situations for almost all of these precepts where, where the adhering to the rule would be not ethical. Taking what's not freely given, somebody's drowning in the lake and there's a coil of rope in the back of a truck, it's not freely given, it's somebody else's. Do you grab it and toss it to somebody or do you go looking for the owner so you can ask permission? You know, not taking what's not freely given is an interesting uh, is an interesting precept because <clears throat> initially we think of these as about material objects, and really, while the first precept is aiming at the impulses of anger, I think. This one is aiming at the impulses of, of acquisition, greed. Uh, I remember walking by a, a tennis court, walking my dog and walking by a tennis court and it was dusk and there was nobody there and somebody had left a tube of tennis balls. And of course what showed up was, gee, there's a tube of tennis balls. It's all, they're out there. Um, and I noticed that desire for those tennis balls. I don't play tennis. <laughs> and no, it's just a reflex, you know, you see something loose in the, in the world. <laughs> you know. And what was, what was at play there was the, the impulse to want, the wanting impulse, you know. Um, but it can apply not just to material things. I noticed um, a while ago I, I was reading something, I can't even remember what it was, but at the moment it was really striking and exciting and I, I got up and I went in to, to share it with my wife who, when I saw her, she was really into a book that she was, that she was looking at. And I thought, oh, I, am I going to take her attention? without asking and just chime in and say, look at this, da 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 da. So it can be things other than just material things. You know? um, so it's a much broader, it's a much broader uh, issue than just not stealing. It's how it gets translated often and understood often. But it's not, like I say, it's not a, a bright line kind of rule. Please. Yeah, I think of that one too as not manipulating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, taking what's not really giving, not seducing, you know, in, in uh, persuading, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Because Please. Oh, I'm sorry, just along with what she said, I've also um, corresponded that to right livelihood. Uh huh. Which has been very difficult. Right. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about, about that third one. Um, uh, right livelihood, the third, the third uh, fold. <laughs> um, 
The third, the third element is interesting too. Uh, Kamesu Michachara is the Pali. And it's translated as unskillful sexuality, harmful sexuality. Um, there isn't really a bright line behavioral issue here, except that um, the inner sexual energy is so powerful that it tends to sweep us away, sort of like that tidal wave in Japan. Um, most of us probably have had some experience with that one way or another. But kamesu doesn't just mean sexuality. It translates more specifically as sensuality, so sensual misconduct. Although I think the Buddha was dealing with young monks a lot, and so it may have shown up primarily as sexuality, and it's certainly been translated that way and, and, and uh, transmitted that way in our tradition. But Kamesu Michachara, unskillful sensuality. In Thich Nhat Hanh's rendition of the precepts, uh, he has a whole series of things that, in the fifth, that he attributes to the fifth precept, which might be applicable here. He talks about uh, the misuse of media, the indulgence in, in sense pleasures. Seems to me, in an interesting way, one of the things that we do when, when we're feeling bad is, well, what's comfort food about? You know, we do something nice for ourselves. We make ourselves feel good. Pleasant experience. We bring pleasant experience to obliterate or overcome unpleasant experience, which that's, that's sort of the underlying notion that we've got about how to, how to get along in life, try to make things more pleasant and less unpleasant. Isn't that sort of the strategy? You know, we try to increase pleasant and decrease unpleasant. I mean, I, I do. <laughs> it doesn't really work that well. <laughs> but it's sort of like we don't have another, we don't have a plan B. You know, when it comes to that, well, the Buddha's, the Buddha's plan was plan B. Um, but we use pleasant experience to hmm, you know, we, we take refuge in the TV or we take refuge in, um, I think, of the pleasant stuff. Because usually when we let ourselves get carried away by the urge for pleasant experience, whether it's sexual or sensual, you know, most, those are situations where we can um, make things worse for ourselves and others. The fourth of the precepts is, is about... Um, False speech, to refrain from false speech, which is so vague. You know, I, I spent years, I, I was aware of, of it, but I mean, how, how often do you really apply that or even think about it in situations? I find for me, when, when my mouth turns on, uh, I'm often surprised at what comes out. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the speech, in a way, speech is just reflecting the mind. So it's, 
it's it's not just a restraint on or a restraint of uh, impulses towards pleasant experience or uh, greed or anger. It's a, it reflects almost everything in the mind. And yet, I can think, uh, you know, I, the, the situation that comes to my mind, um, which would, speaking the truth, would be unethical. Suppose the Nazis knock on the door and say, is Anne Frank here? And you say, got me, I can't tell a lie. You know, she's up in the attic behind the fake bookcase. <laughs> I mean, at that point, false speech would seem to be um, the order of the moment. It's, but it is, it is incredibly <coughs> vague, and so it's very hard to pay attention to it. In, in our group in, in Davis, we, we uh, have broken it down into little bits. So uh, just recently we've been practicing uh, not speaking disparagingly of others. Just give it a try. You know, if you set something like that as a resolve, um, then you notice when those situations arise, and you know, you, it, it becomes an insight practice because you can notice what the impulse is. Are you, are you, are you just going along with people bad-mouthing some particularly... Um, visible political figure, public figure, and we can think of all of them. I mean, they do it on the news. You know, poor Charlie Sheen, as if he doesn't have enough problems. You know, but um, uh, compassion for Charlie's not really out there. <laughs> you know. But the impulse to join in and bond over uh, sharing you know, your, your poor opinion of someone else, your opinion. We also have been practicing, um, we did, a, we did a, a period of time where we were practicing not doing self-promotion in speech, which was pretty interesting because it's not just speaking well of yourself, of course, wisdom kicks in. You know, the first, the first element on the Eightfold Path is right understanding. And so there's some, there's, you know, if you're applying for a job, <laughs> you can say all the good things about yourself. I mean, it's, you don't have to be, it's, it's, like I say, it's not a bright line rule. It's a tool for investigation. But as an inside practice, when, when I set that as a, as a practice rule for myself, I found that even, even making a note of something that I, I was aware of, that the people in the conversation weren't, in a way it was drawing attention to, hey, I know this. You know? So it doesn't have to be saying, you know, I spent five years doing this or, you know, whatever self-promotion you might do, but even just to subtly, you know. Um, but you notice, it's an inside practice to notice how much uh, activity goes and, in, in, you know, energy goes into that. Please. Um, can we go back 
go back to the um, not disparaging yeah. part and break it down a little bit? Because, okay, so let's say there's a scenario where people are saying, oh, did you hear the latest thing <coughs> Sarah Palin said? Or, you know, because there is definitely an urge to talk about it, and I mm. think there's important things that could come out of it. So how do we steer the conversation away from just, oh, yeah, she's an idiot or she's so stupid or... You know, how can we get to the of... It's like steering a car that's out of control. Yeah, it's like, I'm sure there's a lot of fear, because I'm thinking, you know, I'm afraid if people believe her, mm -hmm. and, you know, so tell me. Well, it's, I, the, the purpose of the rule of training, like I say, is not, it's not a matter of right or wrong. If Brad doesn't get up in the morning and go out and ride his bike, <laughs> he gets to sleep in. <laughs> it's, so it's not that you're breaking a precept to um, point out some of Ms. Palin's shortcomings. Um, but the, the purpose of the, of the rule is to bring our attention to our attention to our intention. Because really what we're trying to do here is to cultivate intentions that are not harmful. We're trying to discourage expressing greed, anger, ill will, um, with the hope that over time they will atrophy. And so the way we do that is by bringing our attention to those impulses as they arise. And then, when we notice them, then we can light into her if we want, uh, with all the gusto that you can bring. <laughs> or you can just refrain. And I guess the issue is whether or not we're free. If, we're, if we have no choice, if we're not free to restrain ourselves, or even to restrain, if we're not free to not do that, um, well, we're not free. And the idea in, in the Buddha's practice is to cultivate our own freedom so that we can choose when it's appropriate and skillful and helpful. You know, his, his uh, guidelines for speech are... Um, there are either four or five. I never remember until I actually list them. But what you say should be true, unless they're asking about Anne Frank. You know, should be helpful, uh, kind, um, timely. I mean, there there are some moments when people just aren't going to hear what you have to say. Um, that's for, and some, sometimes not just kind, but from a heart of uh, loving kindness and caring. Otherwise, the default would be silence. You know, on retreat, silence is just such a relief. Um, we're not so used to practicing it in our walking around life. Um, but it can also be a relief as well to not just not because it gets to be tar baby like you know 
you hit the tar baby and then you get your hand stuck and then, what did the, was it the fox? The fox hits the tar baby and, and hits him with the other, hand, or? It was the rabbit. It was the rabbit that hit the? No, no. No, no, it wasn't. I think it was a, a Br'er Fox. I remember Br'er Fox, but I don't remember what he did. So my, my, my I'm sorry? I think Brer Rabbit is hiding and somehow makes him believe that <laughs> somehow leads him to hit this tar baby. Boy, we are just so cut loose from our culture. We are just so adrift. <laughs> yeah. Please. I do think the intention is so key, like in your example about, you know, you know something that the other people in the conversation don't know. So if you notice it at that moment, like, why are you inserting it into the conversation? Are you inserting it in so that you can feel like you know something? Or are you inserting it in because it's helpful? And you know that. And if you, you pay do. attention and, and you're really doing it only because it's helpful, then I think you are free because it doesn't come back to haunt you. It doesn't uh-huh. to bother you. Uh-huh. I think, that's, I think that's correct. I think that's correct. The issue here is intention. These, these practice tools are intended to cultivate an intention. It's like with, with dana. The word dana means giving, although we translate it or repeat it as generosity. It's, it's the practice, is the practice of giving, and the idea is to cultivate generosity through practicing giving. The idea here is to cultivate um, the attenuation of dissatisfaction, of suffering, of dukkha, through the practice, through behavioral practices. And we, we draw that line, and then we can sort of see where we are. They're tools for investigation. And the investigation is, in this situation, what is the most skillful way to reduce suffering? In this situation, requires mindfulness. So even, I mean, it requires mindfulness, requires wisdom, mindfulness so that you're aware of what's going on, wisdom so you've got a clue. But you can recognize, you know, the Eightfold Path really in this, the Eightfold Path is not eight separate elements that have just been scraped together and you go, oh, look, eight of them. You know, it seems to me that it's like if you describe a football, you say, well, it's brown, and it's made of leather, and it's filled with air, and it weighs, I don't know. Those are all different elements of the football, but it's just the football. The Eightfold Path, there are eight elements, but they're just eight aspects of an awakened state, of an awakened being. An awakened being would be would, would understand things as they are. The intentions would be skillful. Speech, action, livelihood would be uh, not enhancing the, the suffering in the world. And we would be cultivating, and that person would be cultivating, making an effort and cultivating the awareness to be able to see what's going on, to keep track of what's going on. All elements, all aspects of the same thing. So they're not really separate. 
The last of the the last of the precepts <coughs> is um, I've you know I I forgot to learn Polly <laughs> when I was when I was I forgot to do so much you know I forgot to go to medical school now I think that would have been a good idea um, you know as the body starts to do things you start to say well, gee what is this about um, go to the web. Um, so the last, my understanding is the last, pre- last precept can be translated, is, is translated in two different ways. One is to refrain from the use of alcohol and drugs to the point of heedlessness or alcohol and drugs that cause heedlessness. But, you know, if you have someone, a, you know, terminal patient who's suffering considerable pain or even <coughs> not a terminal patient just after major surgery, you know, the use of drugs to cause heedlessness, sort of what's on the, on the uh, dance card there, it seems to me. It could be skillful at times. So it's not, again, it's not a bright line situation. And when we come to heedlessness, <laughs> do we need any help? <laughs> sort of. Um, and how, how do we recognize when we're heedless? None of us walk around saying, I'm real heedless now. <laughs> and we just don't. You know? it's, I mean, the question is, how do we know when we're deluded? Greed, hatred, and delusion. And of course, greed, longing, wanting, grasping, clinging, and aversion, anger, ill will, irritation, that stuff, they, they flow from delusion. How do we recognize delusion? Because none of us think of ourselves as deluded. Ajahn Pasano uh, from uh, Abhayagiri suggested that you, one way of, of recognizing is if you are uh, suffering. And I thought, well, for a while I thought, well, that's a, that's a good measure until I realized that we don't even notice when we're suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like, ever notice the refrigerator is going and all of a sudden it turns off and you go, geez, I didn't realize that was on, it's making a lot of noise and now it's really quiet. <laughs> You ever, you ever well, it's, it's uh, sort of like that with dukkha. You know, it's sort of a low, I've been down so long it looks like up to me kind of thing. Um, you know, so we don't even notice often just the, you know, the background, um, the background underlying ongoing dukkha that we live with and we sort of you know, on a scale of one to ten, the pleasant stuff never quite hits ten. I mean, maybe for a, a spike at some moment, but now there's always some. Mostly, we'd settle for five. <laughs> it's occurred to me recently that the that that the uh, that a measure is that the precepts are not in the forefront, that we're not finding ourselves living in accord with them. That, that may be a measure. I've been, I've been playing with that and working with that as a measure for myself. Um, when I find um, greed showing up, wanting, longing, I'll just, I'll just mention that I've been reading about the Hubble telescope and everybody will know that. I go, oh, look at that. <laughs> Pretty interesting. <laughs>
Well, this is the, the way in which um, speech, right speech, and right action are uh, rendered in the uh, into the precepts. Right livelihood is really different, and it's there's almost no talk about it. I mean, I, I don't think I've heard a uh, Dharma talk on right livelihood myself um, in twenty plus something years. Um, because it's really nebulous. For the Buddha, he didn't really talk much about it. This is sort of what he gave, he, he, the attention he gave to, uh, to uh, livelihood. I think he was dealing with monks, and for monks and nuns, you know, their livelihood is pretty, pretty well prescribed. There's not a lot of, a lot of choice. But this is pretty much what's in the, in the scriptures about it. He says, these five trades, O monks, should not be taken up by a lay follower. Trading in weapons, trading in living beings, trading in meat, trading in intoxicants, and trading in poisons. It's pretty much what he says. So I think, does that mean you can't manage a Safeway? All that stuff's in Safeway. If, you've got a, if you're selling oysters in the fish part, Department, you got living beings or a lobster pound, and you know, my gosh, what's in the cleaning section can turn into, you know, I mean, there's certainly poisons in there and intoxicants in in their own section. <laughs> it would be great to just label them intoxicants, wouldn't it be fun to just? Sales <laughs> 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 Truth in advertising, really. Um, but, you know, w- the Buddha was talking about a time when, boy, it was a lot different. It was a lot simpler. Um, what if you're a, a clerk for, you know, you, you're a clerk for a file clerk for a company that turns out to be a subdivision of a subsidiary of Halliburton? You know, are you supposed to say, gee, I can't do this? Or, or even even more graphically, Temple Grandin. You guys familiar with Temple Grandin? Yeah. Unbelievable woman, an autistic <coughs> woman who's um, a doctorate in animal sciences at Northwestern, and she's devoted her life to ensuring that cattle get the most humane slaughter possible. Because it's going to happen. And her job, her devotion, is to making that happen with the least suffering possible. I just think that is an amazing resolve and commitment. And yet, trading in meat, I'm not sure that the, that the guidelines that the Buddha laid out um, for livelihood are... Um, Helpful. I think things are so different. I think at a minimum, livelihood shouldn't interfere with our awakening. Just at a minimum. Um, but it's it's tough because everything is mediated with money. Now we don't make stuff for ourselves from scratch anymore. Anybody got anything on them right now that you made from a natural? You know, we, we buy stuff. We don't make 
stuff. Of course, we got pretty complex stuff. You know. So there's this abstraction that mediates between our behavior and our livelihood. And our livelihood, it seems to me, there are sort of two sides, the two aspects to it. There's the way we earn all that money. And then there's what we do with it, the lifestyle that we create. And if we create a very lavish lifestyle, then we put, a, we put pressure on ourselves one way or another to generate resources to support it. In the Metta Sutta, the phrase is unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. And I think that um, you know, the lifestyle we create and, and the lifestyle we, we finance um, and the, the, the way we finance it by, by earning, those two things are um, tied together. They're not separate. And um, Oh, it's from the Metta Sutta. In the Metta Sutta, the Buddha is talking about um, how to live. It's talking about the sila elements. And the phrase is unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Of course, you know, it's amazing. How do you know whether you're unburdened? Or how do you know whether you're burdened? Because, you know, I've, I've... mentioned that in context where people say, well, I'm not burdened, you know. I just keep my calendar together and the four calendars that feed into it are my, you know, my, the calendars in the cloud and, you know, everything is just cool. You know, and this, there's no, this is not a, a rule for judgment. None of these precepts, none of these things are about judgment. They're, 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 the purpose is to help you see what you're doing, help improve your own clarity of recognizing um, the ways in which you may be contributing to your own dissatisfaction. If you think things should be some way and they're not, well then, grumpiness ensues (laughs) in one fashion or another. Right livelihood in this sense skillful livelihood, livelihood that, I mean, right livelihood is part of the Eightfold Path. The purpose of the Eightfold Path is to lead to the attenuation of suffering, attenuation of dukkha, neurotisacha. The third of the Noble Truths is the cessation of suffering. And so the purpose of right livelihood is to lead to that, and so really it is a koan that we answer with our lives. All of these precepts are, are koans. And so the idea here is to, is to keep them present in our awareness, in our attention. Um, because there's no right or wrong answer. And, it's not, and the answer that's right for you might not be right for someone else. So using any of these precepts to judge whether somebody else is doing something right or wrong is falling back into 
these elements, sila elements, as commandments, as judgments, as the way things ought to be. And none of these are really about the way things ought to be. <coughs> They're about noticing how we are. You know, the interdependence of all of us. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really great George Orwell quote that, um, that's, that I've been living with for years and years. And I've, when I came across it, I didn't write down where it came from, so I, I can't tell you where it came from, but I do have it written down as George Orwell. He said, we sleep soundly in our beds because harsh men stand ready in the night to visit violence on those who would harm us. The peacefulness, the opportunities that we have are related, are built into everything. Everything is interrelated. We're not, it's not separate. And so the idea isn't to try to make things right, um, to do good, to do right, it's, it's to be aware and to attenuate for ourselves and others. Suffering, you know, we don't end our suffering without impacting others and we don't uh, impact others' suffering without impacting ourselves. There's a great little story with my, my favorite named characters in the, in the Pali canon, acrobats, and this acrobat is named Frying Pan. I, I, Google frying pan at the Access to Insight website, you'll come up with the, with the Sutta and the story. And these acrobats come to the Buddha, and the, it's a, I think it's a father and a son, and they're, in a, they're disputing. And one of them says, you know, I keep saying, I'll watch after myself, you watch after yourself, and we'll be okay. And the other one says, no, no, you watch after me, I'll watch after you, and then we'll be okay. And the Buddha says, they're both, that you take care of yourself by taking care of others, and you take care of others by taking care of yourself. So, the, so precept practice is a way of caring for all of us. It's not a matter of judgment, it's not a matter of right or wrong. Right or wrong, you know, you can do what you think is right, and somebody's going to say it's wrong, and you can be doing something that you're sure is wrong, and somebody's going to say, go for it. You know, right and wrong are, are um, views. They're fabrications. So I guess the big question in regard to the Cohen for each of us when it comes to right livelihood is pretty simple. It's sort of, How's it going? I think the, the elements of, uh, the sila elements of the path are overlooked, but they are essential because they are what we bring with us to our walking around life. When we interact with others, when we deal with others, when we deal with our life, with our job, by ourselves, in our cubicle or wherever, you know, Sila practice involves mindfulness, it involves effort, it involves wisdom, it involves intention, 
It involves all of the Eightfold Path, and it's, it's the heart of awakening. So let me leave it there, unless there are questions, or let me leave it there in order for there to be some questions, or comments, or thoughts. Please. I have a comment, and I, um, right livelihood has been an enormous part of my life. I've been a litigation attorney for almost 17 years, and I started this practice about 11 years ago, and uh, have now been off work for six weeks, I mean six months, and um, am planning on never returning. Um, mm-hmm. because of certain determinations I made about my ability to awaken and, and um, the harm that comes from that practice in our current judicial system um, and in private practice specifically. And um, I really, really appreciate the, the cone uh, metaphor. I just never thought of it that way, but it really is. And the last almost 17 years, of, especially the last 10 or 11 years when dealing with this practice and all I've done is 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 uh, precept practice and um, for the last 10 years because it's all I really could do working seven days a week what you know um, was practicing right speech and trying to um, encourage my own internal ethics which were not there 10 years ago mm-hmm. um, and which are now 10 years later mm-hmm. very well established inside of me and will never go away at this point and I just wanted to say thanks. Mm. Wonderful. That's, uh, that's what happens. You can cultivate over time and attenuate your own suffering and that of others and not make things worse. My own basic precept is don't make things worse. <laughs> if you can't do anything else, don't make things worse. Please. Curious how your wife is. Ah, well, I'm. She wouldn't want me to say that she's better, because 